Hello fellow time travellers, I'm Nick Briggs and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the monstrous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we're doing something a little different. Before we have our usual panel of novice and semi-novice Who fans join me to discuss the next book in our reading queue, we're going to do a special all-experts panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. (laughs) Our first truly expert panelist is known best in Who circles for his publishing company, ATB, which has produced such must-read books as Red, White, and Who, Outside In, and Journey of the Living Dead. He himself has a long list of writing credits, including co-authoring The Definitive Guide to Doctor Who Collectibles, How's Transcendental Toy Box with David J. Howe. He also hosts a few podcasts of his own, including the MCU Review and the Doctor of the Dead podcast. I myself have known and worked with him on and off since 2000, so I'm very pleased to finally have on our program Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg. Hello, Arnold. Hey. Hey, Tony. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, we go back a ways now, don't we? <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, almost 20 bit. years now. Yeah. A little frightening. <laughs> I know. Well, it's good to be here with you. Absolutely. And here's the weird thing. We've only met in person, I think, once. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would have yeah. been at Chicago Targets, and I think it was, what, 2003, 2004? That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. It was either the Adric one or the uh, Brigadier one. I can't remember which. And our second expert panelist is also a writer, also someone we have had on the show before, but on the other side of the microphone, well, he's on the other side of the microphone now. Um, He began the late and still lamented Fantasy Empire magazine back in the 1980s for going on to co-write the official Doctor Who and the Daleks book with Terry Nation, and then writing some of the best Dalek story novelizations, including Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. He continues to be a prolific writer, and most importantly for our purposes, he continues to be a fan of the show. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program Mr. John Peel. Hello, John. Hello there. Nice to be back again. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you back. Also, you were the one who specifically requested to do this book for this uh, panel, so we're definitely going to talk about that here in a little bit. We continue now with an expert discussion of the second Third Doctor novelization, and in fact the fifth Target novelization, The Cave Monsters. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, adapted by Malcolm Hook for the script Doctor Who and the Silurians that aired from 13170 to 31470, published by Target Books in January 1974. As of this recording in March 2019, this title is currently in print as a facsimile edition from BBC Books, 158 pages. It's a different um, title than the show, right? That's yes. What it is. Oh, we're about to bring that up. Yes. I'm all confused. All right, now go ahead. <laughs> uh, John, you specifically requested to do this book. You said you'd like to join us on the program for a discussion of it. Um, why did you choose this one and not say Time Lash? <laughs> well, the, um, the easy answer is it's one of the books that really, really made an impact on me when I read it. Um, 
back in the early 70s, there was no real news about Doctor Who in any way, shape or form in England. Uh, it was just you tuned in when it was on, you caught the books when they came out, that kind of thing. There was, there was no information, so you had no way of knowing what was coming up. And Target Books had reprinted the original three Doctor Who novels from the 60s, which I immediately bought again um, because they were just so wonderful. Um, they, they looked so great and everything, and it was just nice to have copies that weren't falling apart. Right. <laughs> so, but I, had, I, I really thought that was all we were going to get, that they were just reprinting the original editions. And then all of a sudden... There were two new Doctor Who books. And I mean, there hadn't been new Doctor Who books in almost a decade. And these were obviously the third Doctor, who was still on at that point, um, and written by the original writers for the show. I mean, Mal Hulk um, had written the, um, or, um, you know, the. Silurian's adventure that he based his novel on mm -hmm. and um, although Terence Dix hadn't written the Auto Invasion you know he, he had script edited it so these were people who were intimately connected with the show whose names I recognized and it was just wonderful that I, I just grabbed them so fast and it, it was it was because it was completely unexpected we, we had right. you know I had no way of knowing it was coming um, so it was just uh, a sheer astonishment, and I read both both books at the same time. I, I read them literally a day apart, and finished them the same day that I was reading them. They were just <laughs> both both books just grabbed me so much. Oh, that's right. They both came out in January nineteen seventy four, didn't they? Right, uh, they came out together. Right, and right. It, it it was amazing. Not only did, it wasn't just one new Doctor Who novel; we had two. <laughs> and it, it was just, I mean, you, you really can't imagine how exciting it was at the time because there had been nothing except for the reprints. Mm -hmm. There had been nothing for so long. And then all of a sudden, not only were they doing these books, but they had these marvelous Chris Archelios covers. Oh, yes. You know, and uh, grab your attention. They, they just looked good. And when you sat down and read them, they, they were just so readable, so enjoyable. So, I mean, it, it had a huge impact on me. Uh, these, these two especially, because, of course, they were, they were unexpected. After these two, I think the next big surprise, of course, was when they did um, Doctor Who and the Cybermen, because oh, they had did, that was the first second Doctor story. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know, we we were this this was like the beginning of a golden age for us. <laughs> I, I think we all felt that way when we first discovered Target novels. I I know I did too. Arnold, what was your first experience with this book? Well, I don't remember this one specifically. Not not to have a clear enough memory to know when I first read this one specifically. But I do know that for me, I mean, John's experience is is. Well, it's delightful on one level too, but it's also like it, it speaks to a, a particular era of fandom and, and like John was just saying, such a, a dearth of information about what was happening. You were in the dark. And then it occurs to me that in a certain way, my experience in the United States many years later was still pretty similar 
just maybe a little bit better in that I discovered the show in the 80s and I was watching it on Maryland Public Television, my PBS station, and going to my local comic shop and desperately looking for information. And this is still pre-internet, but at least we had something. It wasn't total blackout of information, but there was no guarantee you were going to get anything. Like a Doctor Who magazine would turn up on the shelf in my comic shop once every few months or six months. And it wasn't regular. And it's just like, oh, I guess if they got it in a box with a bunch of stuff. So you had no regularity. I was trying to piece together the history of the show with every article I could find. And one of the few things that I did have to rely on were the targets. And they did have a nice big wall of targets at my local comic shop. And one of the first things I did was seek out targets for every doctor I hadn't seen yet Ooh. and everything that I hadn't watched. Because in keeping with my, my usual lifetime of loving to read things in advance anyway, I love spoiler stuff. I'm <laughs> all spoiler all the time, most of the time. So I, I sought it out. And so Cave Monsters and many Pertwee stories, I had started watching Colin's stories, and then on Sunday the Washington, D.C. station was running Pertwee. But they started, or at least I tuned in for the first time with Ambassadors of Death. So even though I knew they were coming... I was running to the comic shop and trying to read all the Pertwee stuff before I saw it. Like, I, I wanted to know in advance what was coming, and I only found out after the fact that, like, this would have been one of the ones just before when I started the first time. So I was filling in the gaps. And in this case, I guess what I would say that certainly strikes me about this one immediately is it, it's one of the many books that, and particularly being an early one, that puts the lie to the idea that the targets were just a by rote you know, uh, recitation of everything you're getting in the show. This is not only a great reading experience, but it added quite a bit of material, and it was a good supplementary experience to the television show, not just a, a repeat of it. And uh, and I encountered that, you know, often with, with, with some of these books, and it was a joy. Mm -hmm. And almost always with Malcolm Hulk, because yes. his books were always different than the televised versions. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience with it, except uh, we started the Pertwee story with Inferno after endless cycles of Tom Baker. <laughs> and it was not until, well, come to think of it, uh, Inferno, I think it was released in 1984, the book version. And I got the book via my book subscription about a month before it was going to air on my local PBS station and I could not hold back from reading the book before seeing it which was a good thing because I was off on a choir trip that weekend and I managed to miss all but the last half hour of it anyway <laughs> so ticked off about that to this day um, but, but yeah um, when I first found this book I thought there was something vastly different about it from all the other books and it I honestly thought that it had been written a lot earlier than it had been which makes sense because it definitely feels more of a piece with the first three novelizations than it does with latter ones right yeah those oh, yeah. feel very different in their aims and their tenor and just the sheer ability of uh, writing that's brought to them yeah. Well, another thing that's fun is the interior illustrations, and oh, yeah. that thing, things that eventually, you know, as as the churning machine of everything, um, I guess in a way, kind of takes over. It's like this, 
a lot of them not to say they don't have personality of their own you know a lot of the other books are great too even later on depending on who's writing them and what story it is and all sorts of things but there's a personality to some of these that's very specific mm -hmm. and I think the illustrations really add to that too it gives you a real sense that you're exploring this little world in a book as opposed to just reading like say a, a, like a transcript absolutely I mean occasionally they can be um, unintentionally hilarious I uh I think in this book, for instance, of the one shot of Morka talking to, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking out on his name already. Uh, he would have been the fourth doctor if Tom Baker hadn't taken the part, um, the, 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 the Scottish. Oh, why am I blanking out on the character's no. name? But there's that one shot of the two of them talking, and it looks like Morka is conducting a, a talk show a la Dick Cavett because his claw is just <laughs> casually like, well, you know, in our culture. Yeah, it's very odd. But, yeah, that adds so much to the experience that wasn't there before. And, I, I mean, one of the great things about this book is the way that um, Malcolm Holt goes into the characters. Oh, God, yeah. Um, especially of the Silurians. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the problem when you're watching it on screen is they all look alike. Yeah. I, I, when I, when you're watching it, you kind of get confused as to which one you're watching. <laughs> whereas, whereas by giving them names and personality in the book, he makes it so much easier to follow along. Yes, and um, you 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 get the impression then that they're not they're not all alike. Mm -mm. Not in the least. And, and of course, there's that brilliant little introduction. Oh um, God! Wait, wait. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just adds so much to the book having that little sequence at the beginning. Absolutely. This was something, when I came to do my own writing, this was something I probably had in the back of my own mind is, you know, obviously do, do a Mal Hulk um, and go back and, and write the extra bits in. <laughs> Not just simply writing the story, but going into the background a bit and, and the re. You know, I like the way, for example, he talks about why Quinn is doing what he's doing, yes. whereas on the show, you see him do it, but there's not really that much explanation behind it. I mean, I love the background material that he gives on each of the characters and everything, and it, it does feel more like a, a living book, you know, a living story. It doesn't read like an adaption of a TV show. Not it really reads not. like a novel. And, and that is a good thing. Well, I think John has really nailed it here with one of the reasons why I think, at its best, the kind of target book experience, and a book like this one in particular, is so good. Because obviously, yes, that's the point, is that Hulk and a few others understood the idea that while part of the function of this on a purely like mercenary marketing level was, well, we want to make sure we sell these books, and they're, you know for all intents and purposes like the repeats of the day you know you're not going to get a repeat necessarily so here's the story and all that but it's a completely different medium and why not take advantage of all the opportunities that that medium offers including an unlimited budget mm -hmm. and the opportunity to go back to the prehistoric past and show us how this all began and give these characters life and it's it's the kind of thing that you see a lot of other writers in this and other similar circumstances whether they're being told to or not and clearly these things are possible so maybe they, it was just themselves thinking it 
self-imposing limitations on them. Well, I must only do what the show was. Yeah, but you're missing an extraordinary opportunity. And of course, it points the way to the development of Doctor Who novels in the future that not only expand greatly on the stories from television, but then go beyond them. Because we, we all look to things late in the line, like Remembrance of the Daleks. It's like, oh, see what you can do with it? Well, Malcolm Hulk was doing it right exactly. here at the very beginning. Yes. Yeah. And come to think of it, a lot of the writers from the 60s, when they're given the opportunity to flesh out their stories and expand them in the 80s, they, they take that opportunity and they run with it. I'm thinking specifically about Donald Cotton. Who, yes, I was just thinking mm, the same, yes. Yeah, who never met a story he didn't want to rewrite. <laughs> it's completely different. And for that matter, John Lucarati, when he does um, The Massacre, it's nothing like its televised version at all, which is both good and bad because we don't have the televised version. At least in this case, we can do a good comparison of it. Um, before we move on to another point, though, and this is something that uh, Arnold brought up, why <laughs> does anyone remember or know why the televised story was named Doctor Who and the Silurians and why the book itself is called The Cave Monsters? Well, um, the, the first thing really is that a lot of the early Target novels were re renamed. Uh, I mean, instead of Spearhead from Space, we have Auton Invasion. Um, instead of Moonbase, we have Doctor Who and the Cybermen, um, and so on. Um, I think it was just that they, they wanted to aim it at the kids mm -hmm. a little more, perhaps. And Silurians would not be a grab for uh, the younger readers. Whereas Cave Monsters is far more commercial. True, true. And it's a lot more ironic, too, because you find out they're not monsters at all. <laughs> I know, that's the great thing. Well, the real, the real cave monsters are the humans in the cave. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of clever in a way that like what, what seems like a dumbing down or a simple title is actually mm -hmm. pretty yes. meaningful. So, yeah, it works well. Malcolm Hulk was a good writer. I mean, he... When if I've read several of his other books, and in each case he always adds things to the stories, and he he wrote a book on how to write for television, for example. Oh yes. So, um, so you know he 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 understood structure, he understood framing, he understood what was necessary to make the story work, and really this is a perfect example of it. Um, the book reads. Um, so beautifully, I haven't reread it in, in decades, to be honest. No. Oh, yeah. Really? You really? know, and, and I picked it up and started reading it again, and I was just going through it thinking, wow, this is such good writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't revisited, well, any of these in a very long time. This right. one, certainly. So, yeah, it was it was really refreshing to go back to that and see just how well it yes. holds up. It, it, and it really does. It, it's a good story. The, the, having said which, um, there is one point where he actually calls him Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which, which yeah. I thought, oh dear, you know, the fans would have a field day with that if this came out, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> and um, that happens a lot in those early books too. Those first five, they all do it, including Auton Invasion at one point, if I recall. Well, I think what it is is they were they were working from scripts, and in the script, of course, the line it it would say Doctor Who, and then the dialogue. 
So I, I, I actually think it might be the case that Malcolm Hulk thought his name was Doctor Who. <laughs> um, because don't forget, I mean, um, The Silurians is the only TV episode that actually has Doctor Who and the Silurians yes. as a title. Mm-hmm. So he, he may well have thought at that point, oh, that's his name. Well, and only later, perhaps, <laughs> he came to realize, oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> well, we're giving him a lot of credit, as we should, because he was brilliant. <laughs> but in this case, it was all down to a production error on the on the part of the director, Timothy Combe, who didn't end up working for Doctor Who ever again. Um, <laughs> he was unaware that when the scripts came through, they all had Doctor Who and, and then the name of the show. And in this case, the scripts were themselves called Doctor Who and the Silurians, episode one, two, three, four. But the practice was to send these to the captioner without the Doctor Who and at the beginning. So properly, this would have been called on screen the Silurians. Mm-hmm. But the director, not knowing what he was doing, <laughs> sent it off to the captioner. And the captions were made before they could really do anything about it. And I think created one of the many nice little inconsistencies that breaks the more dedicated fans' brains and makes the rest of us just kind of laugh and look back at history and go, ah, you know, it's just all part of it. It's all fine. All part of the job. Yeah, the other thing in this story also is that he doesn't seem to have much of a grasp of the Doctor's past. No. But there's Mm -hmm. no real introduction. He just turns up on page, and there's no... The Doctor was working as... Um, for this reason, which almost every other writer would have added. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm mm-hmm. Hulk obviously thought, well, wait a minute, Terrence will do that in the previous book. Forget it. And he just <laughs> jumped in. Um, and he, he doesn't give you any background, really, um, beyond a few lines here and there. In fact, when I was reading it, I got the impression that he actually thought the Doctor was human for half the book. Yes, I got that too. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. to, where to pin it down, but I remember thinking, "Oh, he's not—he's not clear on this, is he?" No, he—he he, for example, he says he's talking—he talks about humans, but he, he kind of lumps himself in with them. Mm-hmm. And it's only towards the end of the novel, I think, he actually says um, these humans or something like right. that. Right? There is a mention um, where he says it, it, he thought it best not to mention the fact that he himself was not human. Right. Um, but it's only once in the entire book that he actually says that. Whereas, you know, most writers would, would add it every three or four lines, you know. Yeah, I'm wondering if he knew quite well what was going to happen because he knew, well, he and Terrence Sticks knew that these books would be released right around the same time and he probably did know that Dix was going to give us a prolonged Auton Invasion, which was, of course, a recap of the end of uh, War Games. Right. So, yeah, I figured, eh, Terrence is going to do that. That's fine. Well, it's it speaks to another thing about these two, which is, and it could be it could be a multitude of things, but it, it generally brings up the idea that these were not, or at least he wasn't regarding this one anyway, as every book is a potential jumping on point for a new right. reader, new fan. And obviously that's the kind of thing that would be very much like top of mind later on with the idea that like you never know who's going to pick up like a random target book and discover the universe of Doctor Who but in this case it's like well this is a book in a series and they'll all know 
So there's no point in, in belaboring the point. And maybe that's a bit of a miscalculation even then to think, you know, well, you don't know. Somebody might pick up this and not even know the other one's out. And uh, But it just shows that it's all really early days, I think. And they didn't really... Like, who would ever suspect also that this would grow into a line that would eventually encompass everything? And and we're still filling in a couple of the gaps today, yeah. so it's uh, it's hard to believe, I, really. It, it, we weren't expecting it. Um, even yeah. back, you know, back in the 70s, no. we had no idea. And I, I remember I, was, I read them, and I had a friend that I would um, visit, and we would talk about the books. And we would say, wow, wonder what they're going to do next. Wouldn't it be great if they did? And we, we, we didn't even think they would go back to the second Doctor. Oh, we thought wow. they would just keep going with the third <laughs> because he was the current one, you know, and that they were going to focus just on the current Doctor. So when they actually brought out the, the, the Troutons, we were over the moon. Um, it, it was just amazing. And um, I, I keep saying this, but it's true. I mean, we, we were really being spoiled at that point because... There were no reruns. There were, you know, the BBC virtually never did a repeat of any of them. So, you know, if you hadn't seen the original, they were gone. And nowadays, of course, they really are gone if you haven't seen them. Um, but you know, there, there was no plans to re, you know, reshow things. So this was our way of re- being able to relive the stories. Mm-hmm. Here's something I'm kind of curious about, actually, John. If you don't mind uh, me asking, uh, that's fine. Tony, a question to John, but. But I'm kind of curious, when you were reading these then, did you or your friends ever think about the, the idea that there would be new stories in the books? Was it like, you, did you just assume, of course, these are just going to be novelizations of the TV show? Or were you wondering if they were going to do something completely um, new? No, we just assumed that they were going to be just the TV shows. Um, in okay. fact, it never occurred to me that they could do original novels until... Um, I'd started writing them myself. It's <laughs> 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 a good way well, to discover well, it. Really, what happened then was simply that I realized they were getting near the end of the stories and um, they would have to make a decision at one point to jump or not jump. Um, but back in, well, yeah, you have to also remember there were original Doctor Who stories being published at this time. There were the annuals. The annuals. That's true. Annuals. That's right. Um, yeah, and, that's right. And that was literally the only new Doctor Who stories you were getting. But they weren't very um, good. <laughs> most of them were pretty wretched, actually, let alone not very good. Um, and, and honestly, the, it was nice to have good, well-written stories. Um, so, you know, we, we, it, it was kind of like Christmas annuals, yeah. You know, that that's kind of... Um, Frippery, really. It wasn't really serious Doctor Who. Um, it was nice to get mm-hmm. them, but, you know, if you wanted real Doctor Who, you had to get the Target books. Right. Interesting. Sure. That means that at one point in time, these books would have been kind of top of the line for the merchandising. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, if you just look at the kind of things that were available, particularly like in the first five to ten years of things, you know, well-made, well-published, nicely published books are, are right at the top just in terms of general, you know, material of anything they were putting out. There were a lot of toys, there were a lot of tie-ins and stuff, but the books were really nice products too. So, yeah, and absolutely. They were, they were different from any other sh- um, series. 
for example, um, the various Jerry Anderson shows had novels. Right. Um, these were the only ones, and well, no, actually, that's not quite true. Um, the, the Tomorrow People also did adaptations for their shows, oh, yeah. but that was that followed on from the Doctor Who. Um, and I think what happened was people looked at it and said, oh, we've got the Tomorrow People, let's put those out as well, um, as a response to Doctor Who. I've never actually read any of those. Are they any good, or are they about as bad as the televised versions? They're almost exactly the same as the televised versions. Oh, then really bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you like the televised show, and a lot of people, yeah, if you like a lot it, of people yeah. do like yeah. it, um, then the novels are fine. They don't expand. No. But the difference is, you see, they don't expand on... No. Unlike the, tar- mm-hmm. you know, the Target books gave you more of a breadth to it. There was more depth to the stories. Whereas the um, the Tomorrow People, it was exactly like the TV show. It was ex- it, They were, in fact, exactly the way Target books sort of drifted to. Right. There, there was no real subtlety or depth to it. Um, and also, uh, Roger Damon Price, who wrote them, really was not a novelist. Oh, that, which well, made, he wasn't much of a TV writer either. Well, no, there is that. <laughs> but at least he got his TV shows produced. Uh, but, but really, the, the Doctor Who books, even then, were completely unique. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of all of the TV tie-ins that I remember reading. And aside from... Um, sitcoms, the various sitcoms like Steptoe and Son and the Liver Birds, they would adapt the scripts into not into book form. Um, but other than that, when you go on to like The Avengers or uh, Danger Man or whatever, they're all original novels. They're no, right. they're not adapted from TV episodes, except for a very quick, brief period around 1970 where um, a few TV shows were adapted into novel forms. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking things like The Protectors, uh, The oh, Spaders, yeah. um, UFO. They were all ta- they, they took various scripts and adapted them. But it, it was not common. Mostly they, they were um, original novels based very, very loosely and often by people who had no concept of the, um, the format. Um, whereas the Doctor Who novels were written by people who were involved with the show. Right. Um, and they were really carefully written. I'm wondering if this whole if this whole tie-in series was kind of riding a wave at that point, because it does sound like there was suddenly a vogue for not just doing original novels of a television series, as had been done in the 60s. We got that here in America with... Uh, the Man from Uncle books, right, and uh, and of course you mentioned the Avengers books. So there were some, uh, strangely enough, some Le- Leslie Charteris the Saint books, even though they were adapted from books to begin with. I want to give a shout out to the Get Smart books oh. that nobody oh, ever yes. remembers. That's right, but but were weird because they I remember them as pretty damn good, and they were like a totally different kind of humor than the TV show, but they were also funny. Yeah, they were absolutely and yeah. 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 Johnson, um, really, really good writer. I always loved his stuff. Yeah, um, but but you know the Doctor Who novels. As part of it, I think is the just the the sheer beauty of the books. 
Yes. Um, you know, the, the covers are, are um, really intriguing. Um, and I, know, I mean, I know the fact that they were art covers rather than photo covers was because of the BBC, but it really made them look classier, I think, than just... Yes. I agree. I think it gave them a style that, yeah. that you know, years later, we all, we tend to poke fun at some of the simpler and, like, cut-and-paste Peter Davison covers <sighs> and stuff. I think this made them look like they were stylish and, and worth your attention. Yes, agreed. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And getting Chris Achelios, to, I mean, who, who did most of the early covers... Um, uh, he's a wonderfully stylistic artist, and I, I know I, I, he was probably the first cover artist I ever knew the name of, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. simply because his work is so damn good, you want to know who did it. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. It's like the painted covers we got in the 1970s with the Star Trek books. Yes. Those were, yeah, yeah exactly. Same level yeah. quality. Yes. Absolutely. When, whenever anybody puts a bit of class and quality into into their products, I, I think it really makes an impression on people. And I mean, especially when you're um, younger, you, you know, this stuff is, it becomes part of your background, part of your format, and everything. And and these were, I mean, I was twenty, I think, when most of these came out, eighteen to twenty when they started coming out. So uh, you know, I was developing my own style or whatever, trying to become a writer myself and it, these grabbed me they they and i th i think i learned a lot from reading them oh yeah absolutely i think that says something too right there is that for an entire generation of people and actually more than one because you consider anybody that came to fandom at different times and then did what you did then and what i did later and what other people did still later of using the targets as a gateway to more storytelling is that they were a very influential part of teaching people how books can tell stories well and and not so well right. too and 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 it's in a way it's the economy of the storytelling in so many of the targets that's so instructional because it's it can be very bare very direct and you get a real sense of structure and it's it's very important. Like it's hard to quantify how important these books were for people who went on to do all kinds of other things, and and write their own stories. Well, I was actually going to ask both of you, as you know, writers and editors, you've uh, you've both had to make decisions about how to streamline a narrative in the past, or what could be cut and what needed to stay. And it's clear Hulk made a lot of changes to his story, some of them to shorten it, because it is seven damn parts, but also to expand it. So I'm wondering which ones struck you as the most interesting or necessary changes that he made. John already mentioned it, so it's a bit repetitive, I guess, but I still... The, the whole intro is one of the, my favorite parts, too, because it's just... It, it gives... It, I mean, Hulk also is like so interested in the meaning behind the stories and some of the messages that are trying to be conveyed. And I think the book in some ways captures sometimes even better than the televised version the real tension between human beings and this other group of creatures who, for all intents and purposes, were here first and, and deserve to feel that way. And I think that intro does a beautiful job of like putting you with them first 
It's almost sort of a Planet of the Apes kind of effect where yeah. you 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 get some sympathy with at least one of them anyway, and and then ever and then after that, anything that unfolds from the TV show is colored by your experience from that prologue. So I think that's that's one of my favorite bits of it. Well, it adds character. That's the that's the important thing. And and as Arnold just said, really by doing that first by by doing this little introduction showing you them rather than the tv version where you suddenly come in at the end of the episode and there's the monster right they're not monsters you you see immediately you've got this empathy towards the character um and, and it, what he's doing is he's subverting your expectations you yeah know? definitely and, and he's doing it beautifully yeah, I in fact I was thinking I did not feel myself particularly moved by the killing of the old Silurian on screen, but whenever I read that chapter ending with Ockdell being murdered by his subordinates and remembering his birth coming out of the egg and then dying, it it really is a tearjerker. Yeah. Sure. Um sure. the the other big thing and one that I don't think works quite as well is the abbreviated ending. Mm -hmm. I mean, on screen, the bit where the brigadier is being so evasive with the doctor, and then he he really, you know, he, because he knows that he's going to have to do something the doctor is going to disagree with. Um, it, 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 it takes a lot longer on screen than, a, I think, a page and a half in the book. Tops. Yeah, it's very short. And, I mean, it's like, yeah. quick, out, and he's gone. You know, the the book ends... I mean, I, I always say you should always end the book on a high note, but um, I think he ended it a little too abruptly in that case. <laughs> um, but that was his choice. I mean, what he wanted to do was, as I say, to end on the high note, and all of a sudden it's like, what? Wait a minute, what did they do? <laughs> which, is, which is kind of cool. And mm -hmm. I, I do like the way, also, that the Brigadier goes behind the doctor's back and does what he wants to do anyway, because he thinks yes. it's the right thing. Um, it's a lovely bit of characterization for the Brigadier. He's pretty different in a lot of parts of this, and, and, and while we're talking about character, we should also mention the whole, like, uh, Major Baker to Barker thing. Oh, yes, please. As well. Mm. And, and the fact that he really changes him. Yeah. To use him as a vehicle for a lot more pointed commentary. And I mean, I think it's great. But it's it's it, like this is what Tony was asking. It's like this is a case of not just a departure in terms of oh let me add a little bit or let me cut a little bit. This is throughout the entire uh, narrative. Right. Is taking that character and saying now I'm I'm doing something different with this guy, and uh, and even gave him a slightly different and somewhat appropriate name so that it could say you know <laughs> this is not the Baker you met on television. This is something a little different. Right. Right. And, and that's very good. I like that too. Well, um, I remember when I talked to uh, Terence Dix about Malcolm Hulk, he said, you know, Malcolm was really, really focused on exploring how people behave mm. and in, in saying this is good behavior, this is bad behavior, you know, you might want to rethink this kind of thing. And he really liked to get into, especially ecology and other um, issues. So I, I think... In the book, he tends to be moralistic without being overly moralistic. I think you know. He, I think so too. Just yeah. slap you across the face and say, "Listen, here's the message." 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but he, he does make it quite clear what he's trying to say. Yeah. And I, I think, again, one of the reasons why he put that little intro in was so that you had more respect for the Silurian point of view. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And and you said it right before you said it subverts expectations and the idea of starting and I mean nowadays we see this all the time. So it's not real it's not that unusual like somebody coming to it from a modern perspective might go, Well yeah, so that's you know, we right. do stories like this all the time. But the idea of doing a story where you're setting up a tension between the human race and another race and you start with the other race first and basically for all intents and purposes for for the readership humanize them mm-hmm. so that you create empathy and then move forward that's quite a game changer that's you know not that common as common then and particularly not in like like John was saying like with Doctor Who the the goal at least then was you know get the sting at the end the monster shows up we want to see the monster suit and all that and and in the book instead it's a very calculated flipping of the script to get that empathy going. Right. And it's uh, it's just a great thing. There's also a strange thing about the, the name change. Because January 1974 was right around the time that it was announced that Tom Baker was taking over as Doctor Who. Mm. So I have a feeling they didn't want a bad... A, a so-called bad character in the book named Major Baker when they had an actor <laughs> playing Baker and the Doctor on the screen. That's a good point. Mm. I'm sorry, John, I interrupted you. No, no, I was just going, going to say that um, I think this book is an extremely good example of why Malcolm Hulk was such a good writer. He wrote one way for television, but wrote a, a different way for the novel. And because he was trying to do two different things... I mean, you know, he understood that what you know what you can do on television and what you can do in a book are very different things, mm-hmm. and he wanted to make it the best experience in both cases. So, cutting bits from the the TV show works beautifully in a novel because otherwise it does look padded. Whereas, obviously, on a TV, when you're only getting a, in half hour chunks every week. You can pad it more. You, you've got that extra time to play around with. You can repeat a little bit and everything. Whereas in a book, you can't do that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He also, I noticed, there's one major change that stands out to me in particular, and that is, well, we talked about his handling of, uh, now I'm going to blank out again. This happens every week, by the way. <laughs> Quinn. This happens whenever we do this. Yeah. Uh, let's see, not Dr. Lawrence, Dr. Quinn. Um, His handling of the Dr. Quinn plot, and we talked about how he goes into more detail about Quinn's father being this famous scientist and forcing his son to follow in his footsteps and him being overshadowed by him, but also just the handling of Quinn's death and all of that, because... If you think about it on screen, the Doctor ends up covering Quinn's death for the longest time just to make sure that the Brigadier and company don't go and attack the Solidarians immediately. And he must have looked at that later and said, you know, that's a little bit morally suspect to have our hero doing. Maybe we better not do it that way (laughs) in the novelization. Yeah. Well, I I mean, speaking as someone who who actually novelized some of the Doctor Who books... Uh, mm-hmm. The scripts 
into books, um, you do have that problem. You do look at things and say, wait a minute, you know, you could do this on TV and get away with it, maybe. But in a book where people can, you know, because in, in TV, they, the impetus carries you along. You, you watch the show, or at least back then, certainly you would watch the show. You couldn't rewind it because it wasn't available. You couldn't do things like that. Um, so the, you, the story could be a little less carefully structured, let's say. Um, you know, it, it didn't have to make quite so much sense. Whereas when you're doing a novel, people can just turn back two pages and say, wait a minute, no, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so, I mean, uh, this is something I found when I was doing Dalek Master Plan. Terry forgot parts of what, what he'd already <laughs> set up. And by the end of 12 parts, he'd forgotten um, bits and pieces of the story. And they were never resolved. So I had to actually go in and say, wait a minute, if we're having this in the story, I have to resolve it. Um, and I think Malcolm Hulk did this with his own script. He went in and said, look, OK, I got away with this on the screen, but I wouldn't be able to get away with it in the book. And, mm -hmm. and, and therefore change things. Yeah. And I think that's also the other big reason why the uh, name has changed and why the only other time you'll see a reference to Silurians is on the back cover of the original book. And that is because it was pointed out to him, finally, that there's no way they could be called the Silurians because it was the wrong era. Right. And he does try to cover for it in the Sea Devils by saying they should have been called the Eocenes, but <laughs> right. that's wrong too. And when you go into his novelization of the Sea Devils and you find that scene where he talks about that, it's not there because he's like, no, 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 forget it, forget yeah, it. They are <laughs> Earth reptiles. That's all they Let are. Let go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. By the way, another thing that struck me too, we're talking about like how you can add, like you can fix things that television didn't give you an opportunity to fix one way or the other or that you hadn't thought of. You can also add internal monologues and, and personality that you can't do on television, at least not in quite the same way, without a very different kind of approach to storytelling. I think one of the early ones in the book that really struck me was getting like the whole little backstory on Miss Dawson. Right. Oh, yeah. And it's thing and and to be honest, part of the thing about Miss Dawson struck me is like, well, that's clearly a guy writing that, I think. But um, <laughs> but but even so, even so, what I will say is, look, he's from a time and place anyway. So the the point is that rather than just drop this character in, he cares about wanting the reader to know this is how she's motivated. This is what her relationship is with Quinn, and it adds a layer to things, and it makes you feel like they're real people. Yes. And so, regardless of the details, I I like that too. I like yeah. that touch. You you can almost psychoanalyze his characters. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you you, sure. you you look at Miss Quinn and uh, Miss uh, Dawson and say, "Wow, she's needy." You know? <laughs> <I> mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. there, and and as we said, Quinn who's trying to outdo his father mm -hmm. uh, and failing miserably, um, you, you, can, you can see the motivations, and, and it makes them... It does make them more real. Sure. Whereas on yeah. the screen, they kind of become almost, almost um, cliched characters. Not cliched, but, you know, kind of shorthand. Yeah, and, and they have to be. And yeah. That's, 
And then on top of it, you're talking about uh, psychoanalyzing characters. So then once again, they keep going back to the same point. But then like the, some of the first people we get to know intimately are Silurians. Yes. And, <laughs> and you get to know how they how they tick. And it's uh, he's just I mean, ultimately, he's just very good. You can you can pick a lot of these other ones off the shelf and you're not going to get a story that also gives you a sense that the person writing it really cares about everybody on the page. I mean, some of them really do feel like they're just, well, I just got to get this done. I got to hit 126 pages and be finished, you know, and in this is not the case at all. No. And it's embarrassing when the original author does that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That will happen later. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, we're, we're at the period in Doctor Who history where the writers of the TV shows were very experienced in the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, towards the, um, the the later period, they were bringing in people who had never written for TV before, um, and and it tell you know it shows. Well, I'm glad Time Lash I brought up earlier. Yeah, he was yeah. an ambulance driver, wasn't he? It's something like that. Yeah, um, and you could tell he'd never written before. Um, that that kind of thing it, it becomes quite clear. Whereas when you're looking at people like Terence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, um, and obviously even the old, you know, the older writers like John Lucarotti or David Whittaker, I mean, you're looking at people who who had been working in the medium. I, I think in in Malcolm Hulk's case, about twelve to fifteen years. Yes. So I mean, he'd gotten over his early stumbling and had become a, a really very very competent writer. So, you know, he, he writes a good story to begin with, and then he writes an excellent novel from that good story, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now, having said that, <laughs> you did you said earlier, John, that one of the things you didn't like about this version is how abrupt the ending is, and I was going to ask each of you if there was something that Hulk did in this version that you wish he hadn't or wish he had done differently. And for me, one of those moments does have to do with Miss Dawson. Because he has changed that storyline and made Miss Dawson essentially just another victim of the, um, the Earth reptiles, she doesn't have her later evolution from this mousy assistant into a firebrand who says they've killed Dr. Quinn. Brigadier, you've got to go down into those caves and destroy them all. And that's a bit of character development that's missing from this version. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, it's... it's. I guess it brings up also... I mean, like, you were kind of asking this before, too. It brings up something that, you know, we can't ever know 100% either, which is what's in his mind when he's revisiting a story, particularly one he's already, you know, that he himself has constructed. Like, what works and what doesn't. And... Perhaps, and I mean, this is pure conjecture, but I mean, perhaps it's also just a case of, like we've just been saying about how there are many things on television you can't accomplish in the same way. Like there are things, every medium is additive in some ways and subtractive in others. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a case where for every reason he was changing other things, he thought, well, maybe that beat with her doesn't work in this form the way it did in the other. And went in a different direction but i don't know that for a fact but i'm just saying you know it's a possibility or maybe that was sacrificed in in favor of something else that made sense to him at the time but it just shows how even the same person can revisit a story 
and whether it's character or you know story beats themselves plot beats themselves you don't know you can you can completely re-envision it and um it's part of the joy of these at least certain some of these that really take the story and make it something different and new right oh. also of course uh, i'm just checking the copyright on this um the the book was written something like four years after the tv episode yes mm. and mm-hmm. it, it, the changes might just simply reflect the changes in Malcolm Hook himself. He may have yeah. he may have changed his focus. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And he probably is focusing on different aspects of the Doctor's character at this point, since by that point, Pertwee's Doctor was about to leave, so we kind of know the complete third Doctor. And this is more a characterization that encompasses that and also encompasses the many faces of uh, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. In fact, about the only character that doesn't get as great um, a treatment on the page, even though she does have a few good moments, is Liz. Yeah, I would agree. Liz is actually kind of treated more like a secretary than a scientist. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, is she ever. I mean, yeah. she gets panicky and hysterical about seeing the Silurian, which is out of character. Um, she snaps at the doctor at one point when they're driving across the moor, which is actually a lovely bit. But then at the very end, it's on screen, you think she may know what the Brigadier's up to, but but in this version, she definitely knows what the Brigadier's up to, so it's almost a dual uh, betrayal. Betrayal, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I agree but, with that too. But I love the way that um, they can do that. They can have the Doctor betrayed by the people he's relying on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I remember when I saw... Um, Silurians for the first time that ending really affected me because you know you just don't expect the doctor you, you, you expect everybody to say oh doctor you're wonderful yes great way of doing things we'll, we'll <laughs> go with your thing instead of which the brigadier just goes back blows them up Yeah. and in the book he's more careful not to say that he killed them on the right. don't know that I mean, on the from the TV version of it, it looks like he he's killed them all. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, you know, in the book, he toned it down and said he buried them. Uh, yeah. Either either way, though, he has he has somewhat condemned them to another thousands of years of sleep, at least until we get the Matt Smith story and somehow they've all had surgery. <laughs> yeah, those two. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, just talking about the story in general, regardless, book, TV, whatever, it's it's one of the thing, one of the many things about that season, too. I love that season, and I still always say it's like one of those weird little blips, like the Doctor Who that could have been. Like, for one year, it's a... I mean, we always say it's transformative, but for one year, it's a very different yeah. show, and, oh, and yeah. so much grittier, and and who knows where that could have gone. But I always feel like, in a way, the end of the Silurians is kind of squandered a bit because it sets up what should be, like, what in a modern version would be an arc that would involve a steadily building bit of tension and distrust that would eventually come to a head between the two of them. Whereas in this, it's there, and then he just kind of goes on. And, of course, I love the unit era, but the Brigadier's, the relationship that follows just one year later is already so much cozier and we're just oh, kind of forgetting, you know. But but that's a, it's an amazing ending to the story. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And I also agree with John that it's like it's one of the things in the book. I was a little disappointed when I got to the end of the book, and I thought oh, that's that's not doesn't quite punch it as much as the TV one. But then that's a case of coming down to performance, and us really getting that look of like regret and anger from Pertwee that yeah. that uh, you know that you can't get on the page in quite the same way. So that you know it's a give and take from one medium to the next. Yes, exactly. And just to revisit something you were saying there, Arnold. I, I kind of feel that there almost is that development, but it's very subtle because you have the doctor still simmering about it at the beginning of Ambassadors of Death, which I just, I just rewatched recently. And then in Inferno, a lot of what happens could have been curtailed if the doctor would simply say to the brigadier, look, this is what I suspect. Instead, the brigadier says, what are you up to? And he says, just watch and listen. And he gets subverted <laughs> every time. And there is that level of yeah, distrust. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 But you're I'm right. By it. the next year, they're like, oh, we're best buds and all that. <laughs> that's right. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I think also at the same time as... Um, the Pertwee Doctor Who, we had Doomwatch. Yes. Um, which was created by Jerry Davis um, and uh, Kit Pedler uh, as an adult kind of show. And I think perhaps the BBC may have said to the production office, look, tone down the the Doomwatch aspects. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't want two shows going in the same direction kind of thing. It is that, isn't it? Because yeah. I'm just thinking now to just about every episode of Doomwatch I've I've seen, and they all ring very much like either the Auton Invasion or, uh, well, Auton Invasion, Spirit from Space, or this one. Yeah, there, there's a lot of similarity. Uh, and not just because it's this you know, uh, they all knew each other. I mean, obviously, that that's part of it. And they all had similar um, concerns. And I think perhaps the BBC felt that we were doing that kind of concern with Doomwatch. Make Doctor Who a little bit more family-friendly. Um, yeah. By when you get to the next season, it gets a little light, more light-hearted. Plus, of course, you've got Joe instead of... Um, Liz. Very mm-hmm. different dynamic, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, as murderous and dangerous as the master is, there's still there's a there's a lightheartedness to it that's kind of inescapable. It's it's just it's all a matter of tone. Except when you see him in the Hulk novelizations. <laughs> yeah, right. Because the Doomsday Weapon is a much darker story. I would I would argue mm-hmm. than Colony in Space ever could be. And you can pull it off in the book, sure. Oh, much yeah. more, much more. Yeah. A quick question for you, John. Just, um, do you remember the dates for Doomwatch? Because I think it might have been off the air by the time they finally got around to Green Death, which oh, is probably yeah. why they they yeah. actually did the Green Death. Because now, by that point, even Doomwatch wasn't doing environmental issues. Yeah, no, no. I think Doomwatch was um, seventy to seventy-two, something like that. So that sounds right. First couple of seasons of the Pertwee era. Yeah, um, and then it then it went. So they, Doctor Who could get a little bit grimmer again uh, with, without looking like it was aping Doomwatch. But by then the damage was done. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, the whole Pertwee era to me is one of the highlights of the show. Um, because I am, 
part of it is you did get that feeling of family with the you know with the whole unit set up and everything there was that feeling of family about it um plus it was very inventive i mean a lot of the eras i mean even going back to um to hartnell who i adore and Troughton, there were good stories there were bad stories when you get to pertwee there really aren't bad stories there are some that are less good right oh no poetry story as such i think that i would look at and say why did they make that yeah when yeah you, I, I mean you're right there's no space museum in the pertwee run uh, and there's certainly no underwater menace oh. or time lash you know i mean <laughs> you, you, every other era even even as much as i enjoyed most of tom baker's run there were some you know, real dogs in it. Uh, but when you look at the Pertwee era, there really aren't any stories that are particularly um, odious in any way. <laughs> uh, and there I are think some you're right. that are just absolutely mad genius. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's true. And, uh, and I think Silurian's uh, Cape Monsters is one of them. It, it's just yeah. a beautifully structured and, and um, narrated story. And I know that I know there are people that disagree, but I also think it's a story that that for the most part does a great job of making the use of the time, like that it's seven episodes, but it rarely feels like it's treading water. And just when you think, oh well, what more can they get out of this? Well, infection spreading across the city. We'll deal with that <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. And it and it's like there's enough story to keep that going, so it it doesn't feel like it's padded. No, unlike Ambassadors of Death, where you I just was, have capture, yeah. recapture. Yeah, right. I, I was thinking exactly the same thing for some reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But um, no, Ambassadors of Death feels like it's padded. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, and we know it was. And yeah, there's I, a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Silurians feels like I could have watched it twice, you know, twice as long, if they could have yeah. kept the story going because it was it was so cleverly done. Yeah. The irony there, though, and this is something I just found out recently while researching Ambassadors of Death, is that it is padded because uh, from episode three onward, it's not David Whitaker. It's Malcolm Hulk. Ah. Hmm. <laughs> and this is yeah. show- him showing how he does workmanlike work on on television. That's not Hulk at his best, but it's still better than, you know, say, other authors or other writers when they're having bad days. Yes. So, just to wrap up, just to wrap up, what we usually do on the show is we go to Goodreads. And I've already looked ahead and saw that the average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.74, which is surprisingly low given that it's lower than the score that Hulk got hit for his novelization of the War Games. So, I was going to ask both of you, uh, each of you, uh, out of five stars, how many stars would you give this and why? Uh, Arnold, let's start with you. I would say four. I can't, I, I rarely ever give a top for almost anything. So it's like, <laughs> I guess it's also because I'm still in grading mode in my head right now. And I'm having, <laughs> no, no, very few kids are reaching quite that. So um, I guess I, I'd say a four out of five. There, are like, because I think also we spoke about a number of things where we said, hmm wonder about that one but for the most part you're talking about an expertly crafted version of the story 
that also makes for a really enjoyable reading experience. It holds up after all these years, and you could still easily see that you could hand this to a young person just discovering Doctor Who and say, here's a, here's a good story that you could read. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a great way to recommend it. Exactly. Uh, John? Ah, well, I'm, I'm infused with nostalgia, of course. <laughs> uh, but objectively, it's probably a four, but I, I would probably go for four and a half stars. Um, it's, it's by no means a perfect book, um, but it's very close to one. Mm. Um, it, because it does its job. It draws you into the story. It makes you interested. It like, makes you like characters. And... If there are bits that kind of grate a little, um, they're they're minor ones, and on the whole, it's just a a, a very good, pleasant read. Mm -hmm. And and for myself, I'd also go four point five because that's that's the equivalent of an A minus in my head. I'm doing the same thing as Arnold. Actually, <laughs> yeah. it has those few things, but like when you give a student an A minus, it's you don't notice those errors or those problems with it until later. And you think, no, wait a minute, that should have done this, and this should have done this. But you're so caught up in the rush of the thing mm -hmm. that you don't Oh, all right, I'll make it 4.5. <laughs> Fine. I don't, I don't want to be inundated on Twitter by people who say, why did you take half a star away from well, Cave Monsters? I, I think you're overestimating our listenership, Arnold. No one tweets us ever. But uh, <laughs> they'll find me. They'll probably tweet you, but they won't tweet us about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're unanimous, even though I wasn't expecting that. All right, well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, I do want to ask you: Do either of you have any upcoming projects you'd like to promote? I would like to promote uh, the latest ATV publishing title because it's directly relevant to listeners. We just put out a book by Robert Smith uh, with his co-author Anthony Wilson called Bookworm. It's actually the first volume in what will be a series looking at the many Doctor Who novels. And this first volume covers all 61 new adventures. Oh. One of the things that, um, that really is one of the most exciting things about it for me just as a reader, let alone a publisher, is they track the many ways that those novels had a definite impact on the eventual development and continuation of the new series. But for people exploring Doctor Who through the targets, it's a wonderful way to see how that evolved into original storytelling and how Doctor Who in novel form, going back to these target books and way beyond, has always been a way that people really get excited engaging with that universe. Terrific. And John, any projects? Oh, I'm always working. Uh, actually, um, I've done recently, of course, I've been doing the Lethbridge Stewart series. Oh yeah. Um, having, I, I, I did the uh, the grandfather infestation, which is kind of like um, Cave Monsters in the sense that um, my my aliens are not entirely evil; they're just different. Uh, and of course, the brigadiers in it, so that helps. Um, and I've, I've also done one of the the spin-off series, the um, the Lucy Wilson mysteries, dealing oh, with yeah. brigadier's granddaughter. And again, I have alien creatures in it that aren't quite what you'd expect. I hope, at least, they're not quite what you'd expect. So, um, 
I, I've been having a lot of fun. I'm still doing Doctor Who after all these years. What can I say? <laughs> I think we're probably all thinking that, aren't we? <laughs> None of us thought when we were younger that we would be talking about Doctor Who so many decades on and still uh, getting careers out of it, for that matter. Right. It's a good way to wind up. Yep, it certainly is. Well, thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we bring back our semi-novice panel, including Allison, Dalton, and our good friend Jenny Ingersoll, to find out what they had to say about the same book. We'll also read your comments from our Goodreads group, if you leave any, and give a bit more background on the serial than we've given you here. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces, like a crazy person. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Also feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. Oh, that's right. Um, your Twitter handles, guys. I forgot to ask that. On Twitter, you can find me at Doctor of the Dead, and ATB Publishing, you can find at ATB Publishing. Right, and John? Um, I hide from Twitter. What can I say? <laughs> I'd say so. It's a very good idea. You can also subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice. We are now on Spotify, which is amazing. And if all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye.